1: Welcome to New Books and Fantasy, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This is your host, Gabrielle Matthew. Today I'll be talking with Andrea Stewart, the author of The Bone Shard Daughter. Here's my review of The Bone Shard Daughter. In a world of floating islands, various narrators try to achieve or avoid their destiny or just understand the mysteries of their very existence. There is Lin, the emperor's daughter, set against her foster brother by the manipulative emperor himself, who fosters the rivalry between them by bestowing keys as a mark of his favor. The keys open various rooms which hold the secret to his power. The emperor's most powerful tool is the bone shard magic that he uses to program constructs, which are assemblages of beasts that he builds, which then execute his commands. When the emperor begins to show Lin's foster brother how to use the bone shards, Lin is determined to find out the secret as well and position herself to be the next emperor. Another character is Jovis, a talkative smuggler whose one aim in life is to find the woman he loves, who disappeared one day on a boat with blue sails. Jovis's quest keeps getting sidelined, though, as he becomes more and more involved with the resistance movement against the emperor, led by the Shardless Few. The emperor's constructs are animated with small pieces of bone harvested from children, which he engraves with magical commands. Once the bone shard is activated, however, life drains from the donor, and the shardless few have managed to evade the emperor and hope to break his rule over the islands. Other characters in the first novel include a woman who gathers mangoes all day and has only dim memories of being brought there by a boat with blue sails. Who is she, and why is she on this remote island? Does she know anything about Jovis' lost love? We also meet the governor's daughter, whose lover embroils her in the struggle of the Shardless. Will the governor's daughter turn against her own father? As the story progresses, the characters come together in surprising ways. New alliances are forged and secrets revealed. So let me tell you a little about Andrea. Awesome if this is taken from her website. Andrea Stewart's parents always emphasized science and education, so she spent her childhood immersed in Star Trek and odd-smelling library books. When her admittedly ambitious dreams of becoming a dragon slayer didn't pan out, she instead turned to writing books. She now lives in sunny California, and in addition to writing, can be found herding cats, looking at birds, and falling down research rabbit holes. She enjoys long-distance swimming in her free time. So now I'm going to invite Andrea on the show, and she'll be doing a short reading first.
0: Father told me I'm broken. He didn't speak this disappointment when I answered his question, but he said it with narrowed eyes, the way he sucked on his already hollow cheeks, the way the left side of his lips twitched a little bit down, the movement almost hidden by his beard. He taught me how to read a person's thoughts on their face, and he knew that I knew how to read these signs. So between us, it was as though he had spoken out loud. The question, who was your closest childhood friend? My answer, I don't know. I could run as quickly as the sparrow flies. I was as skilled with an abacus as the empire's best accountants, and I could name all the known islands in the time it took for tea to finish steeping but I could not remember my past before the sickness. Sometimes I thought I never would, that the girl from before was lost to me. Father's chair creaked as he shifted, and he let out a long breath. In his fingers, he held a brass key, which he tapped on the table's surface. How can I trust you with my secrets? How can I trust you as my heir if you do not know who you are? I knew who I was. I was Lynn. I was the emperor's daughter. I shouted the words in my head, but I didn't say them. Unlike my father, I kept my face neutral, my thoughts hidden. Sometimes he liked it when I stood up for myself, but this was not one of those times. It never was when it came to my past. I did my best not to stare at the key. Ask me another question, I said. The wind lashed at the shutters, bringing with it the salt seaweed smell of the ocean. The breeze licked at my neck and I suppressed a shiver. I kept his gaze, hoping he saw the steel in my soul and not the fear. I could taste the scent of rebellion on the winds as clearly as I could the fish fermentation fats. It was that obvious, that thick. I could set things right if only I had the means. If only he let me prove it.
1: I've got Andrea with me today from the Pacific coast of States and we're going to be talking about her book. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. And so let's start off about talking, discussing bone shard magic. It's always a pleasure to discover a novel magical concept. And your book introduces us to bone shard magic. In that, a shard of bone is removed from behind the right ear, usually not willingly, and it's inscribed with magical commands, which then power a construct.
0: How did you come up
1: with this idea?
0: So it was basically um, an amalgamation of ideas. I knew that I wanted to write a book with uh, constructs, a fantasy book with constructs, um, because I kind of liked the idea of bringing a little bit of that sci-fi idea, like robots, into Mm -hmm. a fantasy world. And uh, that was combined with this kind of seed of an idea that I got when I was um, having lunch with some uh, other writers who were friends of mine. And uh, one of my friends, uh, Marina Lossetter, she's also another author. Uh, she um, found a, she almost choked on a shard of bone in her food. <laughs> that got me. That got me thinking. Well, what if bone shards were used for magic? And then I thought, well you could inscribe the commands on them. So everything kind of just followed from there.
1: So that's a writer for you. I was looking for an original idea, even during lunch when her friend's joking. It's like, aha! <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we've been talking about the constructs, and Hughes just explained they're animated through commands, carved on pieces of bone and inserted into them. So the emperor, Lynn's father, He believes in this way he'll always have control and always have loyal servants, incapable of acting against him. Is his perception quite accurate
0: about that? I think that in some ways his perception is accurate. Uh, One of the things that I explore throughout the book is the fallibility of language. So even if you do have uh, a construct that you've created and you've put these commands in it, there are ways to essentially uh, break those commands or to get around them depending on how detailed they are. Uh, In addition to that, some of his constructs are quite complex. And I think once you reach a certain level of complexity, you start to get into the realm of does this construct have free will and can it make its own decisions and can it, it discover ways around its own commands at that point?
1: That was so interesting. You said the fallibility of language. I wonder, uh, do you speak several languages?
0: I do not. I mean, so I speak English, and I um, I, I have very terrible uh, skills with Mandarin, <laughs> and then I know a little bit of Spanish, so it's, yeah, I mean, my, um, my ability to speak Mandarin is always a, a sore spot for me, because I went to Chinese school, and Uh, all growing up, and um, I uh, was quite good at it at one point and then stopped using it, so (laughs) something that I'm trying to always um, brush up on.
1: Well, this is just an aside, but I too have been in contact with Mandarin through my study of traditional Chinese medicine and trying to explain to American and now Swiss patients that the... Spleen system doesn't actually mean their Western medical spleen is sick. It reminded me of the fallibility of, trans, of translation and therefore the fallibility of language. And you know, perhaps your background in that. Rose uh, gave rise to that perception. But getting back to the emperor and his daughter, Lynn, uh, she's definitely one of the main characters. And she's willing to face danger in her secret quest to understand her father's magic. And when she's frightened or wavers, for instance, when she's climbing across wet rooftops, she reminds herself that I am Lin, the emperor's daughter. However, her father is intimidating, even dangerous when he loses his temper.
0: So how does the statement bring her any comfort? So I think this statement brings her comfort because it reminds her of her place in the world. She's constantly struggling with feeling like she's not enough and that she's never going to meet her father's expectations. So I think reminding herself that she's one day meant to be emperor brings her comfort. Um, Of course, I think through the course of the book, she kind of realizes that this isn't what gives her her worth, and she kind of discovers... um, her own path to, uh, like, self-worth, basically. Yeah,
1: I think she, uh, in the course of studying her father, trying to find out how to win his respect, she actually realizes she doesn't necessarily respect her father in everything he does, and that's part of her.
0: Right, or she doesn't want to meet his expectations Mm -hmm. necessarily. That's part
1: of her journey, and then we have other characters as well. Of course, there's Jovis the smuggler. He's on a quest of his own to find his lost wife, who he believes is still alive somewhere. Uh, we find a lot of internal dialogue with Jovis. He often has thoughts, and then he refers to them as lies in the next sentence. And according to Jovis, there are lies people tell each other, and lies that they tell themselves. And what explains his frequent reference to lies, and what's the difference between lies that people tell each other and lies they tell themselves?
0: So Jovis is definitely a talker. He's the kind of person that needs to fill a silence. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I talked a little bit about the fallibility of language. Uh, I think in a lot of ways, uh, Jovis understands that the world around him is shaped by people's perceptions. And that the truth means different things to different people. Um, for Jovis, I think that uh deep down he understands that he's not really different from other people. So as he notes that he that he sees people telling these lies to each other and he sees people lying to themselves about things, I think he knows like deep down that he's also lying to himself about some very important things. Um so that's kind of his journey is that he is he notes these things about other people, but he doesn't necessarily understand that about himself.
1: Mm-hmm. He changes trajectory in the novel by learning some things about himself, by accepting some truths. And he's aided in that. He has an awesome companion that's kind of a pet, but kind of not. Uh, this companion's called Mephi, and he was one of my favorite characters, and Also, for some of your readers, I think one of their favorite characters, he's hard for me to describe. Can you introduce Mephi to our listeners?
0: Yeah. So he's actually this little creature that Jovis um, saves after um, this island sinks. So uh, Mephi's kind of like this, I would describe him as like a mix between like a cat and an otter, and, but he's also got horns, so he's, like, this water-dragging otter cat thing. <laughs> I've, I've drawn a picture of him, and I've seen some fan art, which I enjoy very much, um, and I think I described him, uh, I mean, his physical appearance in a way that people seem to understand because of the fan art I've seen. I'm like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. that, that's what he looks like, <laughs> um, and he is kind of cheeky uh so he gets into trouble a lot um, anyone who has a pet would probably <laughs> kind of relate to some of the, the things that he he gets into uh and he also i think you find out very very early on uh starts to learn how to talk which is why i think he is kind of a pet but then also kind of a friend He's almost
1: like a conscience sometimes for (laughs)
0: Jarvis. Oh, I I definitely agree, yes.
1: So you've created a unique world, one with floating islands and bone shard magic, but it does have Asian influences. Uh, How has Asia influenced you personally?
0: Well, uh, both of my parents are immigrants. So my dad immigrated over from Scotland. And my mom immigrated from China, and I grew up around um, a lot of my uh, Chinese relatives. So I think that I wanted to bring some of that feeling into this book, um, just the way that my family kind of interacts with one another. Um, there are a lot of very different aspects to it. So I know like with Lynn and her father, where she's got this very like <laughs> disapproving father who's Got all these very high expectations of her. Um, there is that aspect in. Uh, a, if you talk to a lot of um, Chinese kids, you'll you'll hear that they have uh, you know parents who have very high expectations. Mm-hmm. But there's also this uh, very close feeling of family and connection. And I wanted to kind of bring that into. I think you get like a little bit of that sense with Jovis, where you can see a little bit of um, his relationship with his parents, but also um, when Lynn goes out into the city and um, has dinner with another family where they're all, you know, living in the same house and it's multigenerational and um, they're very fond of one another. And I I kind of wanted to bring that in. And then also the food. (laughs) So I I talk about food a lot in my book.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: um, And that's a very big part of my life. My family, we get together a lot and we're constantly talking about what we're going to cook. And <laughs> it's like this big collaborative process. So um, that was something that I, would, I wanted to bring in and just kind of um, the feel of some of the world and um, the world building. I also wanted to have like, you know, a little bit of that sense of imperial China where you have the emperor, and you have the palaces, and you've got these beautiful tiled roofs, and it's just, yeah, I just wanted to kind of build, build in a little bit of my experiences into this book.
1: Well, I think you were successful in that. Um, a recurrent theme in your novel is the discovery by a character that they have been controlled and manipulated, and the consequent struggle to find their own agency. Can you comment on that a bit?
0: Yeah, so for this, like, I I think that it's a very relatable theme, although not necessarily to this extreme. Um, I think that a lot of, I mean, we all kind of grow up with a very simplistic view of the world, uh, Mm -hmm. and then... As we grow older, we find out that the world is just so much more complicated and that that simplistic worldview that we had has been colored not just by our parents, but by our peers and then our government and the media around us. So I think a lot of what goes on throughout the course of my three books is that um, these characters are discovering that they've had this very simplistic view of the world and that there are things that, they that have happened that they don't know about, like in their history and everything, that kind of complicates their worldview, and um, leads them to come to different conclusions.
1: Yeah, like their eyes are opened uh, as they go along, and they they find out these clues about what's really been done to them. It's very interesting. So let's talk about gender roles and sexual preference in your world. Uh, there is a gay character, for instance, do uh, gender roles and sexual preferences define your characters and how they're
0: accepted by others? Um, it does not in this world. So, yeah, there there are two main characters that um, are in uh, an established relationship, <clears throat> and they are gay, and that's just not a big deal in my world. Um, and um, men and women assume different roles. um and it's not dependent on their gender.
1: What made you decide to structure the world that way?
0: Um, I think that a lot of fantasy, when you read it, it's very uh, patriarchal. Mm -hmm. So you'll have, like, a king, and his son is set to inherit, and there may be, um, there is a lot of fantasy that addresses feminist struggles, um, which I think is, Uh, very valid, and um, I think, you know, having a patriarchal society is valid, but I see that so often. I don't think that necessarily reflects uh, history or (laughs) the way that things are everywhere in the world. I don't think that every society has been patriarchal, and I think that there are a lot of women that have been erased from history in some ways just because of the way that um, our society is nowadays. Um, so in this world, I kind of just didn't want to have that at all. <laughs> so, so, you know, Lynn is her father's heir. Um, it doesn't matter that she's a woman. Uh, I have these two women who are in an established relationship. It doesn't matter that they're gay. I didn't want to have that be an issue in this world. Um, I just feel like I've seen enough of, the other way around. And like Mm -hmm. I said, while that is a perfectly valid way to tell a story, I wanted to tell a different one.
1: Well, and it's still about control and manipulation and repression. It's just that you're exploring repression in a more general way instead of gender associated. Lynn is still exploited in some sense. It's just that she's not exploited because she's a woman. She's exploited for other reasons. Yes, exactly. So, um, uh, what are you working on these days? Are you uh, still
0: working on the follow-up or on the third book in the series? It's funny because the way that publishing runs, it feels like you're constantly in the past and in the future at the Mm -hmm. same time. So, so I've been promoting the paperback release of my book. Um, At the same time, I just turned in the proof for book two, So uh, that is written, it's edited, it's copy edited, it's basically being, um, it's in production right now. And then uh, I have been drafting book three, so (laughs) I'm like feeling like I'm kind of living in like three different timelines. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's a lot to
1: keep track of.
0: What's the title of
1: book two and when can we expect it to hit the market?
0: Okay, so book two is The Bone Shard Emperor. And I believe the release date for that is November 9th. Uh, I would have to check, but I think that... I know it's November, mm-hmm. and early November. Um, and I actually have the title for Book 3, too. So the title for Book 3 is The Bone Shard War. So we've got, like, that progression from daughter to emperor to war.
1: Yeah, so it gets the stakes up with each consequent book, it sounds like.
0: <laughs> yes, and that's... I mean, that's what you have to do with a trilogy, basically. Well, between uh,
1: long-distance swimming and writing, you must keep really busy. Thanks so much for taking time out. One last thing, if people want to keep up with you, uh, what's your favorite social platform and how do they find you?
0: So I have a website. It's andreagstuart.com. And then I also am on Twitter probably more frequently than I should be, given (laughs) that I'm trying to finish book three. Uh, I'm on there, uh, also under Andrea G. Stewart, and then uh, on Instagram as Andrea G. Stewart. So if you just search for that, you'll find me. Okay, well, thanks for, so much for chatting with me today. Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. Thanks
1: for listening to me today on the New Books Network in fantasy. I've been talking to Andrea Stewart about the first novel in our series, The Bone Shard Daughter. Next up will be my interview with Ava Reid, the author of The Wolf and the Woodsman, an enemy to lovers story. Her debut novel is set in a dark world influenced by Hungarian folk tales, and plagued by nationalism. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more, at Gabrielle Author. Till next time.